Morning. I know it will not be hard for you to imagine, but I was a terrible child. <laughs> Utterly rebellious, uh, smart mouth, uh, disrespectful. Greg, Greg can't even believe it. He's shocked to hear this is true. And uh, I remember when I first saw the title, Sible Will Child. And uh, my mother, who up until my early adolescence was the most stubborn person in our household, found that she had a worthy competitor. Now, of course, for those children who are listening, let me be clear. I am not saying it was good that I was such a terrible child. It was terrible that I was such a terrible child. I have been apologizing to my mother for about 48 years for how terrible I was. But if she said yes, I said no. If she said up, I said down. If she said light, I said dark. There just wasn't going to be any cooperation. And whenever I really started to master the English language, I know some of you are saying, has he yet? When I began to master it, of course, it became a verbal combat. And you know that you are being used by the devil when you can make your Southern Baptist five-time-a-week church-attending mother scream out invectives that you wouldn't hear down at the Army base. <laughs> now, my mother does listen and watch our services. I'm sorry, Mom. Again, why would this sweet, very godly woman be led to let fly choice language? Because she was aggravated to death. That's the way she would have said it. Actually, she would have said something like, you are on my last nerve, right? I was actually well past that, usually when the invectives flew. When we come to this passage, which I know we're looking at for a second week, we're really looking at the last three verses, we are looking at Paul using the strongest language that he uses in his letters. What he says here, while we can read it really politely, you know, for instance, uh, in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to them, let him be accursed. That word accursed is the word anathema. And it is like ban or put under the ban. It means to devote to destruction. To put it as one very modern translation said, uh, they translate it this way, if anyone preaches another gospel uh, to you, let him be damned to hell. That's what it means. And I know I'm not supposed to use either of the two words I just used up here, but that's the language. This is what Paul is saying. And so I want us to look this morning at why does he use language like this. So we're going to look at this text in three points. One, we're going to look at the cursing apostle. Secondly, we're going to look at the sober disciple. And thirdly, we're going to look at Paul the people pleaser. And so those are our three points. First of all, the cursing apostle. Now, when I say the cursing apostle, I am not giving uh, necessarily a shout out to the old cussing pastor from the late 
90s and early O's, uh, here it's not cussing apostle, but cursing apostle. And I really want to camp here because I think there are a lot of people here, young and old, that are really disturbed by this kind of language in the Bible. Now, there's some sitting here who are like, why does the Bible have to say such strong and black and white kind of things? If, if anyone, if I or an angel from heaven uh, gives to you a different gospel than was preached to you, let him be damned to hell. Why does it have to use such extreme language? Can't we get along? Can't we just accept that people are different? Can't we appreciate other perspectives? And so when we come to language like this, we have, to, we have to think, why is Paul using this extreme language? Well, first of all, he is a cursing apostle because he realizes that souls are hanging in the balance in terms of what they believe is the gospel. Now, we talked about it last week when we looked at the first few verses in this text, and we said that what Paul is saying is that people have brought a different gospel. But it's not really a gospel at all. In other words, it's not good news, it's bad news. They've turned the good news inside out, upside down. They've got it backwards. And he says it's no gospel at all. And the problem is that if you are living in such a way that you believe that, that you are acting and thinking and feeling in the right trajectory, but you're on the wrong path, you will end up in the wrong destination. And Paul loves these Galatians. And if he knew you, he would love you. And he would want your soul to be safe. He would want your soul to rejoice in God, to delight in Jesus Christ. And so he uses this strong language because this is the and that is the gospel. And so he says if someone teaches or preaches another gospel, including, interestingly, even himself. I love that. Now, it is, of course, a hypothetical. If I or an angel from heaven were to preach another gospel to you, what Paul is saying, let's just say, that something strange happens to me. I have some sort of medical or psychological break, and I began teaching that you are not made right with God simply through faith in Jesus alone, but through faith in Jesus Christ and something else. He says, may I be accursed? He calls a curse down upon himself. So he's not just spitting venom to his enemies or to those who oppose him, but he is saying the gospel is so important that it's a manner of being cursed or it's a manner of being blessed. And he wants your soul to be blessed. So let's revisit again the nature of the gospel. Now last week we said the gospel really can be summarized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can also say it this way, the gospel, the good news is good news because of bad news. The bad news is that even though God created humanity to perfectly reflect his glory and to represent him as a vice regent here in this world, they did not stay that way. We find the story in Genesis chapter 3. He gave humanity the really option of either continuing through faith 
in the reflection of his glory or choosing to reject good and evil. We know in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent comes along who is really our enemy, the devil. And he says to the woman, you know, if you eat of it, you will surely not die, but your eyes will be open and you will become like him and you will know good and evil. What does he say? Why reflect the glory of God when you can have your own? And so the woman looks at the fruit and sees it's good for food and good for gaining wisdom. And she takes, she eats, she gives it to her husband who also eats. And their eyes are open and they realize that they are naked. They do know about good and evil because they have now entered into the universe of evil. And that's the bad news. The bad news was not just bad news for Adam and Eve, but it was bad news for every single person who descended from them. All of them were now born with a bent toward disobeying God, dishonoring God, and actually failing in their creative purpose to reflect his majesty, his beauty, his glory in this world. That's bad news. The bad news gets slightly worse. It gets a lot worse. That the result of rejecting and rebelling against God is exactly what Paul pronounces. Anathema. Eternal judgment from God because we have rejected the purpose for which he created us. The wages of sin, Paul says over in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That is the bad news. And until we understand that bad news, the good news isn't so good. But then it makes the good news shine like a diamond in the light, doesn't it? Because the good news is that God loved a world full of sinners like me and like you. And that he sent his son, God who became man, who lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never rebelled. He never made the wrong choice. He perfectly reflected the glory of God in this world. And at the end of his life, he was made to suffer the most heinous and painful criminal death known to humanity at that point in time. He was cursed, even though he deserved to be blessed. Why? Because he was taking the place of the children of Adam, people like me and like you who would believe in him. He there took the penalty that sin deserved, And on the third day, he rose from the dead, showing that he had paid it completely. And he says to his followers, I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to tell them about this good news. I want you to tell them that even though they're alienated from God, they can be right with God and enjoy a right relationship with each other because of the good news of who I am and what I've done. And so that's what we do. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Paul says, if you add something to this good news, it becomes bad news or less than this good news, it will not lead to the blessing of people, but to their anathema, to their cursing. This is why Paul uses this language. This is about life and death. We go to strong measures sometimes when we do this, right? When my wife was uh, in college, she tells a story, and I've heard it so much, I've made it my own. It was before I met her. But uh, my wife came down with a rather severe case of mono. Now, my wife, unlike her husband, 
was a dutiful student who never missed class, who always did her homework, and exams were approaching. And she just continued to study and to work. And her roommate, who normally would have been oblivious to her health or well-being, started to realize Karen is getting delirious uh, because her fever had been so high for so long and she was so dehydrated. And uh, she said, Karen, we need to go to the health center on campus. And Karen's like, I don't have time. I've got to get ready for exams. I've got to finish this paper. And she said, no, I think you need to go see a doctor. And she said, no. So finally, the roommate took a different tack altogether. She said one evening, Karen, let's lie. My wife still hasn't gotten that blizzard from her roommate because she took her to the emergency room, not to Dairy Queen. And there she was checked in and given fluids and all the medicine she needed. And thankfully, she's still sitting here today. I'm very thankful for Leanne for lying to my wife. Why did she have to go to extreme measures? I'm not suggesting that you lie to save your children's life, but if it comes down to it, pray and ask the Lord for help in that regard. Yeah, I'm not going to be caught on tape saying anything like that, just to be clear. I'm not stupid. But uh, nonetheless, why did she go to such extreme measures? Because as far as she can tell, Karen's life was on the line. And, And we need to understand this. We need to understand the significance of this. I think so often, if you're one of those people sitting here and you just sort of have been dragged to church since you were born, you didn't ever have an option. Your parents dragged you here. You, you voluntarily kept coming. But you've just sort of been in church world like a fish is in water. I think sometimes we take that good news about Jesus in stride. And we fail to recognize the preciousness of that truth. Here, Paul's cursing, this cursing apostle is reminding us of how absolutely critical, how life and death, how blessing or cursing your understanding, application, and communication of the gospel is. And we have to understand that. I want us to see also when we look at this cursing pastor that he is making a very good distinction for us, and that is he is delineating between the messenger and the message. Notice he, uh, again, he calls down these curses on himself or an angel from heaven, verse 8 or verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be accursed. Here, this is helpful for us because I think sometimes we kind of get enamored by that person who is rather eloquent in the way they speak or rather popular in terms of the people who follow him. And we begin to assume, rightly or wrongly, that what they say is the gospel. We're like, well, how could it not be the gospel? They're filling a whole arena with people. All of my friends listen to this person. All of them are always following their podcast. All of them are excited. All of these Christian people that I know treat this person like a rock star. I don't care. Paul says, even if it's an angelic being, which I think is interesting, he says if that angelic being is adding to the gospel, if they're not preaching the gospel, then they should be damned to hell. Now, when you start cursing angels, 
you are, I mean, I think that includes every Christian superstar we have sitting in the room or that any of you listen to. And that means that we need to be very careful listeners, right? You need to be a careful listener here. I love that in the book of Acts, it talks about uh, Paul going to Berea. And he said the Bereans, that is the people who lived in Berea, were, no, were more noble than others because they listened whether it aligned to it. We need to be Bereans in that sense. We need to be people who no matter how good they look, how young they are, how popular they are, however many millions of people follow their Twitter feed, are they communicating the gospel? Is it what this book says? Is it true? Because we need to be able to understand the difference. And here's something that I want to really encourage you in. The reason why I'm jumping up and down on this just a little bit is because we have an internal bias that if someone is pleasant, then what they're saying must be true, right? It's why on all the advertisements, they have such pleasant sounding people. Right? If they really want to convince you about something, they throw in someone with a UK or Australian accent. <laughs> because we're suckers for that, right? You know, it, it's, you know, if you got someone with an English accent to say to you, you know, uh, that having a diet completely of chocolate is the most healthy thing for you, you're going to be inclined to believe it. You know, I've always wanted chocolate. The British person said that it was a great diet. No, we need to listen. We need to look through that. Now, I'm not saying that every pleasant-sounding person or good-looking person or popular person uh, we need to have suspicion about, but we do always need to have our brain on. And we need to have our Bible open. And we need to ask, is what they're saying the gospel? All right, let's move on. So we understand now why he is the cursing apostle. But secondly, I want to ask the question, are we a sobered disciple? If Paul uses language like that, that means that we should think very carefully about what message we have received and what message we're communicating explicitly and implicitly in our life and community. So first of all, notice that uh, Paul uses a a change when he is laying out these curses. In verse 8, he says, if anyone should preach a gospel contrary to the one uh, that we preach to you. And then in verse 9, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. And by bringing this up, he is calling the Galatians as his witness, if you were. He's calling them to the stand. And he said, please explain to me, Mr. or Mrs. Galatian, what it is that you heard me say. What good news did you receive? What changed your life? What enabled you to appreciate that you needed God's saving love? What was that good news? He's calling them to remember what it is that they received. And that means that we should consider what gospel have we received? Right now, sitting in this room, I hope there are at least a few people who would say, I have heard and received the gospel, that good news about Jesus Christ. What was that gospel? Now, if it's the true gospel, it was the gospel that even though you're a sinner, God loved you and, and uh, became a man in Jesus Christ. He, he died on a cross for you and that you have believed in him, that you are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone to be right with God. Do you hear that? That's, that's, if you heard that gospel, 
and responded to it, then here's something that I know happened. The Holy Spirit did something in your life. The Holy Spirit changed your perspective about about what you would enjoy and what you wouldn't enjoy. The Holy Spirit began to work in your life uh, a new affection about what you wanted to say. And you believe this good? Did you do it perfectly or say everything that you should have? No, of course not. But because you believe this good news, this good news that God loved you for nothing in you, but only because of Jesus Christ, did you receive that gospel? Some of you sitting here might have heard something else. Maybe it wasn't said, but maybe you inferred that the gospel was, well, if I get my junk together... And I, and I clean myself up, and I wear the right clothes to church on Sunday, and, and I clean up my language, and I, you know, sort of temper my drinking, then God will be happy enough with me that I can enjoy a relationship with him. Now, I really hope no one said that to you. But there are a lot of us who, who have believed that. That's the gospel we received. It was, well, Jesus is, a, is an okay start to this thing, but I really need to get the stuff together. And in which case, you need to examine the gospel you receive, because that is the kind of gospel Paul says is anathema. Because it's just Jesus and nothing else. And so we need to think about that. But I want us to really go to the next step. What we believe the gospel is. We are communicating it in our words and we are communicating it in our life. What is it that we are communicating about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You might say to somebody, maybe it's your child. Well, we're Christians. Whatever comes out of your mouth next is what you're communicating the gospel is about. And if the next thing out of your mouth is we're Christians, so we have to do this right, then you're communicating a false gospel. We're Christians only because of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Am I communicating that to other people? You know, we do it in ways that we don't, we don't even think about. We could be sitting, you know, in, in our little group and we're asking for prayer requests and somebody chimes in with something they're struggling with, you know, and they say, you know, I'm really struggling uh, loving, uh, loving my wife the way I ought to love my wife. I'm, I'm struggling to lay down my life for her. And, and immediately, you'll have someone say, well, all you need to do, you know, is make sure you go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, pray more, you know, uh, make sure that you take her on six dates a month, and, uh, and then you'll be a better husband. And you know, without even knowing it, that person has just communicated a different gospel. That, that your hope for being in a right, right relationship with that spouse is all of the things you do. Instead, we need to say something like, I'm going to be praying that the Spirit will work through you to demonstrate Christ's love for her through laying down your life for her. That's gospel. Because it points that person back to Jesus. We do it without even thinking about it. Someone says, I need help with something, and we give them the law. Just do this, just do that. Hey, look, i got to be honest with you. The whole church growth movement, starting in the 90s, moving all the way up till now, is all about giving people attainable accomplishments that will help them, at least on the surface, have the perfect Christian life. You know, six steps to have the ideal marriage. Twelve steps to make your very disobedient children obey you. I challenge that altogether. 
you know, here are six steps to make all your neighbors love you. And while I'm not going to pass, you know, an anathema on everybody who does that, because certainly there are reasons that you would enumerate things like that, almost all of it is law. Almost all of it is, yes, you can be a good Christian if you follow these steps. And Paul would say, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, you can honor God if you continue to depend on the work of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. So what are we saying to other people? Let me lean into this just a little bit more, in case I haven't made you uncomfortable yet. You know, because that's, I mean, our, our goal is to think and to feel, right? If you are a parent or a grandparent, and I know that doesn't include everybody, and if you're not a parent or a grandparent, you're cool and I love you, okay? Let's just be clear about that, you know? But if you're sitting here and you're a parent or grandparent, what are you communicating is the gospel implicitly? That is, what do your children or grandchildren think? Are, are you communicating that you feel better about yourself if you made it to the gym six days a week? Are you communicating that you're pretty sure that you're right with God because you haven't, you know, looked at pornography all week? You see, we have these issues where, without even saying it, we're implicitly saying, well, the gospel's fine for Sunday, but how hard we work and how much we accomplish is really how the job gets done during the week. And parents, you have to communicate the gospel both in word and in deed. And so let's say your child, this is free. I'm filling it in for free. Let's say you have a child who is struggling. Let's say that they have rebelled in some pretty demonstrable way. One of those things you can't wait to tell your women's Bible study about later in the week, you know, because they're always so sympathetic, right? So your child has rebelled in a significant way. You told them that they had to be in at nine and they came in at nine, but they went out through the window at 10. And you found out about it the next... People gasp. Does, does that not happen here? <laughs> They're teenagers here. I sure hope they don't know that that happens here, right? But let's just say that happened. You know, that kind of thing happened in Spartanburg. We were a bunch of rednecks where I grew up. Uh, we went out the window at Ted. But anyway, let's say you find out about it. And you're having a conversation with that child. How am I going to communicate that child's ability to live a life that is reflective of God's beauty and glory? Am I going to communicate that that child will do it through great discipline and structure, or will I communicate that that child can only do it through the power of the Spirit at work in their life? Will I communicate that their only hope is the grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus and the power that comes through Him? Because I will either be communicating law or gospel. And the way I handle that situation. And that does not mean, and do not hear me say, gospel is light. I assure you, my children growing up would have rather gotten the law than the 45-minute conversation about their need for Jesus in their life. I, I swear, when my kids were like 10, they were like, just hit me and let's move on. <laughs> right? You know, they never said that, just as a side note. But it was about, is the gospel working in their heart? You see, we have to ask the question. Because here's the deal. While we may come and sit here and think that this whole enterprise is just about Jesus and me, it is about Jesus and us. 
And how we think, how we talk, how we demonstrate the gospel affects everyone in your community. It affects us all. And Village 7 Presbyterian Church will either be a church that claims to believe the, the gospel and then lives it out, or it will be a church that claims to believe the gospel but is really as legalistic as all get out and practice. And i got to be honest, I have no interest in the second. Do you? We want to be a place that encourages and helps people to believe and apply the gospel in their lives. We don't want to give them a shortcut that utilizes the law or the rules or the discipline, but we want to point them back to the power of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Very briefly about Paul the people pleaser. Notice in verse 10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is saying, look, I'm either going to be a people pleaser or I'm going to be a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, literally. In other words, I'm going to be a slave to the opinions and preferences of people or I'm going to be a slave to Jesus Christ. And he says, which is it? Why does he bring this up? Most writers believe that he brings this up because that is exactly what the false teachers are saying about Paul. Paul will say anything he needs to say for you to believe this gospel that he's preaching. You know, he's a little soft in person. He gets a little hard when he's away. And, uh, and they're sort of implying that Paul is a people pleaser. Other writers say, well, perhaps Paul is looking back to his life before he became a Christian, where he was rising fast, very quickly in Judaism. That's why he was persecuting Christians. And then he was doing everything he did to please other people. Well, all I know is that Paul says things that certainly can sound like he cares about pleasing people. Let's uh, look quickly at 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. Uh, we'll start in verse 21. Paul says this, and it sure sounds like he's trying to please people. Let's think about it. He says in 9, 20, 1 Corinthians 9.21, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Well, that sounds like Paul is trying to please people. He, he's acting in different ways. He's, he's observing different sort of uh, uh, customs because he wants to, to win an opportunity to communicate the gospel. But then if we look over at another passage that he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we can start in verse uh, 5. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So in one passage, he says, I do all things, you know, so that I can reach all people. In the other, he's like, I never flattered you at all, but did it all for the Lord. So is Paul, you know, a people pleaser? And we need to be able to discern very clearly what Paul is saying. Paul over in 1 Corinthians is saying, look, methodologically, I'm very flexible. That is exactly how I go about 
you know, uh, my ministry among other people. In other words, I look and consider the people and the context and the time and what's going on, and I try to make sure that methodologically that I am communicating the gospel in a way that the people in that particular community at that particular time can hear it. Because the thing I want them to do is hear the gospel. And so I adapt my methodology in order for them to hear the truth of the gospel. But then when he's talking over to the Thessalonians, he's saying, look, I am inflexible when it comes to my theology, what I believe about God, what the nature of the gospel is. And this is a balance. I just wanted to bring up, this is really a segue verse into the passage we're going to be looking at next week. But we need to think about this dynamic in our own church. We need to not be people pleasers in that we suck up to the culture around us and try to do and say exactly what it wants us to do because theologically we're inflexible. We believe what the Bible says. We are actually covenanted to follow the summary of what we believe the Bible says in our historic theological tradition. We, every time we ordain anybody here, they have to take vows as such. So we're theologically inflexible. But on the other hand, we need to be methodologically flexible so that we can reach all kinds of people. We don't want our church just to be a bunch of, you know, a 16th century loving Reformed theologians. We want it to be, I don't even know if there are such, a, well, we have to be filled with all kinds of people, people who grew up in the church, people who never have walked in the door of the church. We want to have people who grew up hearing about Jesus and people who've never heard about Jesus. We want to be able to be flexible in the methods we use in order to communicate this gospel that we're completely inflexible about because it's the only good news. And this is the balance. Why do I bring this up? This is just a pastoral moment. Because to be honest, I think in churches, we end up talking a lot more about the methodology than we do the theology. We end up talking about all the things that really satisfy our preferences. You know, the temperature of the air, the sound of the music, the type of songs, the, you know, what are we learning in community this week? You know, the structure of village group. And what is a village group? Or what isn't a village group? Depending on how you want to look at it. And we look at all this and we can get all rankled about all of this and we'll miss the thing that's most important, which is the gospel. And that all of these things are just tools that we're utilizing to communicate the truth of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some methodologies that are actually going to run counter to our theology. We need to be very careful about that. But we need to be able to delineate the difference between the two. Paul does. Because he says, look, at the end of the day, as a slave of Christ, my goal is that I honor him. That I honor him. That I reflect his glory. That I continue to look to him. That I trust in him. That's the point. And that I help others do it as well. And, hey, if he brings it up in the Word, it's good for us to consider. So let's wrap it up. The gospel is serious. It caused the Apostle Paul to be a cursing apostle. That should sober us into considering what gospel have we believed. There's some of you who have been believing the wrong gospel, and there is freedom and joy just on the other side of your trust in Jesus and him alone. A freedom like you've never experienced. And then what, are the, what is the gospel we're communicating to the world around us? 
And maybe that world is just a few people that live in the same apartment or dorm as us. Or maybe it's a much bigger sphere than that. May God give us grace to believe and communicate the whole and true gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for how kind you are to us. Lord, the gospel is a seriously joyful truth. Lord, too often, we're not enjoying it. Lord, because we have allowed other things to leak into our gospel, may we be sobered to be diligent that our gospel stays pure, that we are right with God and in this world through Jesus and Jesus alone. Oh, Lord, may we be free in our understanding and communication communication of this good news. May we be a church that has the sweet odor of salvific love that is communicated in the good news about Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, give us grace. And the power of your spirit for this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.